So let's, let's get started with a word of prayer. Uh, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to gather together, create community, uh, learn more about you and about each other. Um, I pray that you will uh, give me what I need to be saying and that uh, you will guide me and that ultimately um, we will glorify you in everything we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so Grace. Uh, I know a couple people with the name of Grace. Uh, personally, uh, you guys all might believe in Grace just as the fact of how on earth Michaela married me. Um, that is what Nazarenes like to call prevenient grace. Uh, is, I know the first time my dad met my, my, my wife, Michaela, uh, he said, if you don't bring her home next time you come home, you're not allowed to come home. Uh, so, uh, yes, there's a lot of grace to the fact that I convinced Michaela to commit her life uh, with me. Um, but for real, what, what is grace? So um, this is where the pop quiz comes in. Uh, there'll, there'll be another one later, but uh, what are some of y'all's definitions of grace? Thank you. So before we get too deep, um, we're going to look at a t couple different aspects of grace. Um, I think after we go through this, uh, you'll kind of see that uh, the scripture passage I read from in Romans is kind of glittered with different grace. It's just kind of with some covert language, uh, I feel like. Um, so we're going to go through some t uh, key terms uh, of grace that are uh, straight out of the Nazarene manual. Uh, so if this sounds boring for a second, it's because it is. Um, so first we have the word uh, justification. Okay, uh, So justification is the gracious and judicial act of God by which he grants full pardon of guilt and complete release from the penalty of sin. So I invite you just to reflect. You look through the passage. Uh, can you see the word justification or its meaning in this passage? How does it stand out to you? Just This is more rhetorical. But I invite you to just kind of look at, the, look at the scripture, see if you see justification in there. The next key term uh, will be regeneration or new birth. So regeneration is the gracious work of God whereby the moral nature of the repentant believer is given a distinct spiritual life of faith, love, and obedience. So, I invite you to reflect on that same scripture. Can you see the new birth or the regeneration in this passage anywhere? And the last key term we'll be going over is adoption. So, adoption, uh, it is the gracious act of God by which the justified and the regenerated, it's all happening simultaneously in case there was any confusion or if that just adds more confusion. Um, the justified and regenerated believer is an instituted child of God. So, how do you see adoption being communicated in this passage? I invite you as we go through this journey um, to remember those three key Words, justification, regeneration, and adoption, they will pop up in a lot of different ways, uh, in different words, um, and they're also just really helpful to understand what the Bible says about grace in general. So if we look at the uh, founder of Wesleyanism, 
I don't know if he chose this name or not because his last name is Wesley, but uh, John Wesley, uh, he believed that grace is defined as God's free, unserved, undeserved, sorry, undeserved bounty, even though we have no claim to his mercies outside of Christ. Another way to define grace is the undeserved, unmerited, and loving action of God. So as you can see, the definitions of grace are uh, complex. The impactfulness of grace is abundant. Um, but what does grace look like today? So as you guys probably know, some of you all probably know, I probably look a little tired. I got, got home about 1.30 last night um, from another basketball tournament in Bowling Green. For some reason, they decided to schedule our last game at 8.30 at night. Um, and uh, that didn't even get over to like 10 and then yeah whole, all sorts of stuff I'm supposed to give a post-game speech was really just like I'm sorry we lost again but um, it was it was a pretty good tournament we we ended up losing in the semifinals by one point uh, we had three opportunities to score and those two guys that had those opportunities were very upset obviously um, but it was, it was a good tournament overall, and we will find out, because we got to the semifinals, we will be going to the national tournament in two weeks, and we'll find out what our seating is hopefully next week for that. Anyways, so every week for about four to five nights, uh, basketball takes up about three hours of my night uh, for practices, and that's not even counting like scouting, preparation, all that stuff. Uh, so basically, I don't have time for much outside of work. And um, some of y'all have asked me, well, why do you do this? Um, it's, it's a fair question, very fair question. Um, but it's because I love it. To be honest, um, I feel it's where my giftings and my passions kind of collide. Uh, some would call this a calling. Um, and I didn't know it was at first, and it kind of was just something fun to do, and now I realize how much I enjoy it. Um, and so I know not all of you are huge sports fans. Uh, some of you may despise sports. That's okay. I understand. Uh, there is a massive amount of conceit, ego, money, um, exploitation, hurt in sports. Um, but I want to share a story of the hope that I find um, through sports. So uh, last year, uh, when, if you just kind of familiarize you a little bit more. Um, I coach for a homeschool program. There's multiple homeschool programs in the area, um, around the nation, um, and it operates very much like a private school would as far as basketball goes. Um, we have conferences, regions, na nation, national tournaments, and, and other teams we play. And a team across the city, and they're kind of located in Hendersonville area, um, had shut down because they just didn't have enough players. So we had some of those players come join my program that's in this area. We practice down the street on Owensville Pike. And uh, they were rivals. So we're integrating this team of rivals and people who have been here for a while. It was just a, it was a very interesting environment. Um, but there was two players in particular that, for whatever reason, um, they just butted heads the whole season. At one point, we were talking in the locker room, and uh, one of the players was like, well, who is your least favorite team to play? And this one kid goes, uh, your, the, your former team. And he was like, oh, why? He was like, because of you. I hated playing against you. You were the worst player to play against. 
And I'm sitting there like, oh gosh, all the conflict in here. Um, so that was the kind of relationship they had, these two kids had back and forth with each other. Um, basically, all season. Uh, there, was, there were some kids that welcomed um, each other and became friends instantly, uh, but these two, these two kids uh, butted heads. So for the sake of the story, well, well, I don't know if I'll call them a dynamic duo, maybe it's an argumentative duo, um, but they were, they were just kids. They were great kids individually, but there was still a rivalry barrier. Um, they wouldn't pass the ball to each other. Uh, there was one game against uh, Battleground Academy. They, at halftime, they just sat in the hallway and argued. They didn't, never came to the locker room, and so I had to go um, talk to them. Um, and as you can see, it caused a lot of dysfunction in the team. There were two of our better scorers, so um, it caused a lot of dysfunction in the team uh, throughout the season. Um, but through a lot of different team activities, uh, I began to see they were bonding a little bit. It was slow, um, but there were moments um, to rejoice about in the process. It was a compliment here, um, a pass here, or, or a laugh there. Um, and then some of their teammates started saying, I see them working together. And I was like, we're heading in the right direction. Uh, this is a great reminder that you can't force community in relationship. But the last game of the season showed me what the kingdom of God feels like. So uh, we're at Nationals, uh, and I remember um, this feeling is like very tangible and kind of getting chills as I'm talking about it. But one of these members of the headbutting duo uh, was sick. He was uh, he had gotten sick quite a bit, but also uh, we went to this wonderful restaurant called Lambert's. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Lambert's, but Lambert's failed us, and they got like three of our kids food poisoning. Um, and so I was, I felt so deceived. I was like, I loved you guys. How did you have to do this to us? Um, but so he was sick, and um, he couldn't play. And um, so he was in his bed at home taking meds, and... Uh, it was his senior year. It was his very last game he'd ever play in competitive uh, basketball. And when we told the team this before the game, um, of course, multiple of them were sad. What I didn't expect was that the other member of the headbutting duo, who was um, healthy, said, hey, coach, uh, what if we... FaceTimed him in for the game, and we started four people instead of five in his honor. And I was like, did you just say that? Like, <laughs> you just did something kind for this man? And so we did. The whole team agreed, thought that was a great idea. Um, it was a powerful moment as we started with four guys, um, and the other team scored on us instantly because we had one less guy. <laughs> um, but it was powerful because all the crowd was cheering, all the players were cheering for him. He's on FaceTime just crying, um, appreciative. Um, and that almost kind of summed up that season, is that um, we witnessed rivals become friends. But that moment, it went a step further. The rivals weren't just friends, they had become brothers. And that took a lot of grace throughout the season from a lot of different aspects, but it also took uh, self-emptying of egos from these high school boys. So that's what grace looks like in my world, 
um, today. I would love to hear from one or two people about maybe an example you have of grace in your life that you've experienced or you've given. Kind of following up on that, that third question. I told you there's going to be something. Yeah. Things happen in my life for a reason. I try to obey God, and I'm so busy trying to live a Christian life that I can't always do the right thing. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Carl, for sharing. So this connection between grace and self-emptying uh, reminds me of kenotic theology. And you're like, what on earth? Uh, it's only because I've read this book recently. Uh, so it's not because that's what I think about on a daily basis. Uh, but I recently read this book, Blessed Are the Consumers, Climate Change and the Practice of Restraint. Um, it uh, is, is not talking about blessed are the consumers. In fact, it's quite the opposite, which is why I wanted to read the book. And I was like, I should have known this as a marketing ploy. But um, anyways, uh, so... Uh, it's largely based on kenotic theology. Um, kenotic theology is uh, also known as surrender, or some people call it ego death. Um, it's focused on becoming uh, united with God through grace, and it stems from the self-emptying of Christ found in Philippians 2, 6 through 7. So kenotic theology is different because it is not a set of concepts, but rather a gradual self-emptying of oneself, um, specifically one's ego. You're going to see kind of a trend here. Um, but a good example of this uh, found in the book is that of Dorothy Day. So if you don't know who Dorothy Day is, uh, she practiced uh, voluntary poverty, uh, believing that she had to restrain herself from modern comforts in order to pursue justice clearly. So she's known as some big, uh, some big things she did was like uh, founding the Catholic Workers Movement, and um, she was also known for literally kissing two different lepers as a kind of a protest against society. Um, but she also worked on finer details of love, grace, and justice. Uh, she believed 
Um, the details of self-emptying herself of her possessions, opinions, reputation, wishes, impulses. Um, ultimately, she believed that the practice of restraint was essential uh, for her, in her individual and communal salvation. So in this book, uh, Professor Sally McVeigh, or McGay, um, writes about Dorothy Day. Um, that she said, in order to love Christ, one must deny oneself. Kenosis, self-emptying, was not, um, sorry, was the rule of life for Dorothy. It was not watered down, not served just for the saints. Not practiced now and then, rather the wild space of voluntary poverty that came to her midlife when she began to practice giving up at all levels, not only gourmet meals and good music, but also privacy and comfort changed her so that she could see not only her own life differently, but also the myth of American militarism, materialism behind which the masses were suffering and dying. To call to self-denial, the, the call to self-denial for people like Day was the catalyst for deep change. So Dorothy was dedicated she even believed that you could really only see God in all of creation if your ego was out of the way so that we could see God, not us, is at the center of everything. So um, Professor McVeigh ties grace to kenosis beautifully by saying we must first pursue the decreation of our self-centeredness and then the recreation of authentic selves by God. You could also say that those decreation, recreation, you could throw in justification and regeneration in there as well. So you know what else is led by grace with the practice of self-emptying? The season of Lent. Uh, so yes, I did not forget that that was a big day today. Lent commemorates Jesus' fasting for 40 days in the desert while being tempted by Satan. We read the passage about that today. Um, and it's the season of fasting, repentance, moderation, self-denial, spiritual disciplines. Um, it's also uh, brought through the abundance of grace of the death and resurrection. So as a quick side note, does anyone else think it's like weird that like I can ask a question about your fasting and everyone's like, oh yeah, this is normal? Uh, when like typically we would be like, uh, you're not supposed to share about your fasting, but anyways, it's the, it's the time of year. Uh, so... Um, um, I've fasted from chocolate before. Um, I one time tried to, I, t I tried to pray every night, which really just like uh, resulted in me falling asleep faster. Uh, so I'll just be real, it's not really worked for me too, it's too great. Um, but anyways, during this season of Lent, um, I want encourage to think, encourage us to think about how we can connect uh, with grace in a new way. Is there a practice of self-emptying you can instill um, that would strengthen your unity with God? Is there a practice as a community we could instill that would strengthen our communal uh, unity with God? Uh, it's valid. <laughs> so uh, to bring it back to Romans um, 5, verse 17. How can we, as individuals and a community, better receive God's abundance of provision, of grace, and let the gift of righteousness reign in our life.
How can we as a community receive God's abundant provision of grace and let the gift of righteousness reign in life? It may mean doing more, it may be doing less, it may be doing differently. So I want to encourage that as an individual and as a community today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to share. I pray that you will help us to reflect, uh, to navigate how to better serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, how to glorify you more, and what we need to do during this Lenten season to be able to draw closer and be united with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.